Well, indeed, it has been a rich summer in the Psalms as we have been able to cover quite a breadth of experience and truth as is revealed in the Psalter. And there is still much to be gleaned. We, uh, we only covered such a small sampling of the Psalms compared to what is, what is all there. And uh, no doubt it's a place we can return in, in future times. But for our, our final uh, message in the Psalms this summer, I chose Psalm 42 and 43. And I'll explain in a bit why I'm covering two chapters. Uh, I wasn't just looking for a opportunity to see if I can preach two psalms on a Sunday, you know, some sort of uh, pastoral challenge, but uh, I'll explain that in a moment. But let's pray as we approach the Word of God this morning. Our loving Father, we ask now as we open your Word that you would please open our minds, open our hearts, you'd soften our hearts, that we would learn your truth, that we'd see you in your Word, and that you would increase our trust and our love of you as a result of our study this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. As many of you are familiar with the story of the Lord of the Rings, as authored by J.R.R. Tolkien and depicted in the movies under the same titles, a hobbit named Frodo Baggins is tasked with taking an evil ring from his comfortable home in the Shire to the dreadful Mount Doom where it must be destroyed. His journey is long and is fraught with unimaginable dangers, but one of the stops along the way is in the forest of Lothlorien. And in this place, Frodo meets the Lady of the Wood named Gladriel. She gives to Frodo a vial filled with water from her magic fountain. And Gladriel explains to Frodo that captured in the vial was the light of Arendelle's star, a special thing among the elvish people there. And she says to him this line. She says, May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. May it be a light to you in dark places when all other lights go out. And as the remainder of the story shows, the light in that vial not only proves to be a tool in dark places, indeed shining a light, but it also functions as a beacon of hope for Frodo and his faithful companion Sam as they struggle to carry out their epic task. And this morning, God's Word is going to give us such a light. A light in dark places when all other lights go out. But I'm not talking about physical darkness, as you may suppose, but really an emotional darkness, a darkness that can come over our souls for so many of us. Because sometimes our emotions lead us into a dark maze. We feel down. We don't have any joy. For some people, they have no idea how they got to that dark place. All they know is that right now, I'm just sad. And I don't know why I'm sad, but I am. And I can't seem to find the light of life again. 
For others, they do know how they got to this sad place because there was some event. Maybe it was harmful words or actions done to them by a family member or someone close to them. Maybe it's a health crisis. Maybe it's a a loss of a family member. For these people, the cause of their pain and their sadness is no mystery. It's But what is a mystery is the path back to joy. Now, this darkness can be described differently by different people. And and even if we polled everyone here this morning and talked about the low points of your life, you would probably all use slightly different words to describe it. Some call it depression. Others just say that they're sad. And still others say maybe that they're discouraged or disappointed or disheartened. These feelings can be associated with a lack of motivation, even a lack of appetite, and a lack of desire to spend time with others. These dark, sad feelings are not foreign to any of us because to feel down and disappointed is really part of the human experience. It's part of the full scale of human emotion. We are not immune from having our joy taken from us. And we can find ourselves lost, trapped in dark places where there's little to no light. But our passage this morning will help provide some helpful light for us. And if you're here this morning and you're in one of those emotionally dark places, I pray that you find the hope in your God's Word this morning. And maybe you're here and you aren't in one of those dark places. Life's going pretty good for you. Well, I encourage you to listen up because no doubt you will be called upon to come alongside somebody who has or is going through a dark place, and you can be able to point them to the hope found in the Word. This light is going to shine for us in Psalm 42 and 43. We are looking at two psalms this morning because there's strong indications that they go together. We don't know if they were originally one and then broken apart or if they were just written close together. But what is obvious in the reading of the two is a refrain that's repeated in the two psalms. And just uh, as a sample, go to the end of chapter 43, 43.5. The psalmist writes, Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. This refrain is twice in Psalm 42, verse 42.5 and 42.11, and then here in 43.5. So this ties these two together, as well as there are some, the same questions that There's a question asked in 42 verse 9. We see those repeated almost verbatim in 43 verse 2. And so there's these indications that these psalms were linked together. And so we're going to take them together this morning. Before we read them, let me just say a quick note about the author. As you look at the superscript there at the beginning of Psalm 42, it says, To the choir master, a masculine of the sons of Korah. The sons of Korah were Levites who produced and performed music for the people of Israel. While the tabernacle was in the wilderness, 
before they had a permanent place in Israel and even after the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. And some would say that the sons of Korah didn't actually write this psalm, but they actually just uh, uh, preserved a Davidic psalm, that David was actually the author, and it was given to the sons of Korah to hold on to, and they preserved it. And that certainly could be the case. It sounds kind of nice, but we have no indications that's actually the case. Uh, either way, we know the Spirit of God included these psalms somehow through the hands of the sons of Korah and have included them in the Psalter for us. The word uh, masculine uh, is generally seen to be uh, understood as a psalm of instruction, a psalm of instruction. In fact, we saw that as the title of the psalm that was read earlier, Psalm 32, with the same, same uh, designation, and therefore tells us there's something for us to learn and be instructed from, from these psalms. So let's read these psalms together, starting in Psalm 42. To the choir master, a mascal of the sons of Korah, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I would go with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. My soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon and from Mount Mazar. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day, the Lord commands His steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him, my salvation and my God. Vindicate me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. From the deceitful and unjust man, deliver me. For you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In these psalms, we see a man who is sad and who is struggling. 
And so in these psalms, we will find hope in the midst of dark and depressing emotions as we see the, contour, the three contours of the psalmist's struggle. The three contours of the psalmist's struggle to bring us hope. And so the first contour that you see as the psalmist is wrestling is the first that he is depressed in the, in the drought. He is depressed in the drought. And we see this in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 42. In these first five verses, the psalmist takes a downward spiral. He's pulled into himself, almost hunching down into a fetal position by the time we reach verse 5. He begins on a high note, but his sorrow pulls him down. And it begins by speaking of desire and aspiration. Some words that no doubt are familiar to you have been put to music and, and have repeated by, by saints down through the ages because of the wonderful natural analogy that is built into the text that the psalmist uses. Verse 1, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul after you, O God. He uses the metaphor of a thirsty deer. David or, or, or some other psalmist having been out in the wilderness, no doubt having seen a, a deer who is, uh, who is looking around for water. And in Israel, there are many of these steep ravines, which in Arabic are known as wadis, or in Hebrew, nahals, and, and they're all over the country, and they're formed by the erosion of water. And when you go there during certain seasons of the year, you wonder, how in the world, world was there that much water to, to form these steep ravines? And it just has to do with the dry season and the rainy season of Israel. Israel, And those who are going uh, in this next spring will be able to see that and, and witness that. And so in the rainy season, they're filled with water. And you can get quite a bit of water rushing through these ravines. But in the dry season, there's only a few that might still have a trickling brook growing through them. And so the imagery here is, is a deer panting, looking for a stream that still has water in it, for streams of water. He might come to one that he knew had water before, but now it's all dried up, and so he continues to pant and has to travel even farther, and so gets more thirsty looking for that water. The psalmist uses that as an analogy for his own soul. He's looking around, he's hunting, he's panting, his tongue is hanging out of his mouth, as it were, spiritually looking for water, looking for the Lord to satisfy him. He feels parched spiritually. Here we see the first reference to the word soul in this psalm. The soul is the immaterial part of us that's deep down in each one of us. We're composed, the Bible, Bible teaches, of the material and the immaterial. And by the soul here, he's referencing the immaterial part of us, the part that no surgeon can reach. In our hearts, in our souls, resides our personality, our emotions, our worship, and our will. And so when he says that his soul thirsts, he's saying that it's coming from the deepest part of him, very, very deepest part. And he says that he longs for God. He says, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. He wants to be close to God. He wants to worship Him. He wants to commune with Him. But he's, he's recognizing he's in a spiritual drought. 
Verse 2 asks the first question, and there's many questions throughout these two psalms, but this is the first one that we see. When shall I come and appear before God? And in one sense, you could ask, well, aren't you, we always before God? We live our lives quorum Deo, Latin meaning before the face of God. We're always before Him. But we need to remember that we're speaking of an Old Testament saint here, in which the worship of the the Old Testament saints was very centralized around the tabernacle and the temple. And as God set that up for the worship of the nation of Israel, it was that God's presence came and resided in the Holy of Holies, there over the Ark of the Covenant. And so for the, the, the people of Israel, there was a sense in which they could get closer to the presence of God by being around the temple. Something that we can't relate to today. There's no physical place on this earth where we can go to, to, to get closer to the presence of God. But that was the case for the people of Israel. Now, it's, it was possible for, the, for people to get closer to the Holy of Holies, closer to the temple, and yet not actually be spiritually closer to God, which was the case of the nation at the time of Jesus, right? And actually many points throughout Israel's history. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. So even though they were performing religious exercises and they were trying to go close to God and it looked like they were close to God, internally they weren't, didn't actually have the intimacy and the closeness with the Lord. But this man has a heart that's longing for God, longing to appear before God. It's used elsewhere. This phrase, appearing before God, is used in Exodus 34 and Deuteronomy 31 to refer to worship at the temple or the tabernacle. And so he has in his mind, I want to go back to the temple. I want to go back to the place where God is. He aches to be beholding the Lord, be satisfied in his presence. And so it seems, and we have indications, as we'll see throughout the psalm, that this, this man is far away from the temple. He, 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 he spent a lot of time there in Jerusalem worshiping the Lord, even being a worship leader of sorts, as we'll see in verse 4. But now he's, he's far away, and it's caused this deep drought and this deep longing. But we must not read these first two verses as a man who is, is high in some lofty tower, like a, like a monk who just spends all day and night on the floor in prayer before God with just such a deep heart desire, and think that this guy spends all his time just praying before the Lord, because we see that this guy is, is, is not untouched from the concerns of life. In fact, he's in the thick of it. Look at verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? This man, even though he longs for the Lord, what has been consuming him is his tears. A sadness that, that is deep and abiding. We understand that as we need food for sustenance, he says essentially his tears have been all that there is. And this could mean that he's lost his appetite, that he, he just simply doesn't eat and he, he just weeps. There are some translations that, that indicate the second phrase of verse 3. It says, while they say to me all the day long and 
There's some debate about whether that they is speaking of his enemies and adversaries that he's going to mention later on in the psalm or whether they mention his tears that he's just mentioned. I tend to think that it, it refers to his tears. He's going to get to the adversary part. He's going to mention that later. But I think there's a sense in which his tears are, are mocking him. His sorrow, his crying, he thinks he's going to get it out. It's going to make him feel better, but it actually makes him feel worse. It doesn't relieve his pain. It deepens his pain. They say, with this much sorrow, how can you say that God is with you? How can you say that you even long for God when you're crying this much? But his sorrow, I think, continues to deepen as he reflects upon the past in verse 4. He goes, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. How I would go with the throng and lead them in procession in the, to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praise, a multitude keeping festival. He used to be some sort of worship leader in Jerusalem. We don't know exactly what, but he seems to have led people in procession to the house of God. He very well could have used the songs of ascent that we looked at last week from the Psalms 120 to 134 that we have in the Psalter and, and would have helped the people of God rehearse those as they were going up to the mountain of God to worship the Lord. And I just picture this man in a dry desert place, his, his eyes red from weeping, and he, he's wiping his tears and he's daydreaming, and he's remembering the, 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 the shouts of praise, the, the festivals and the people surrounding him and the joy that's surrounding as we go to worship the Lord and they're looking at one another and saying, is, the Lord is good for his love endures forever and amen. And there's, there's just this camaraderie and this great joy together as they're worshiping God. And yet he snaps back to reality and he is nowhere close to that right now. He's not close to that physically, and he's not close to that emotionally. The words pouring out my soul, he says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul. This is the phrase used in the Old Testament to refer to disclosure and the unburdening of one's heart. It's usually connected to deep agony and deep pain. And we see that in the case of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Where, or chapter 1, rather, where she says that she's going to the temple and, and she hasn't been able to bear children and she goes and she pours out her soul before the Lord in deep pain. Jeremiah uses that same phrase in Lamentations chapter 2, which Lamentations, a book of sadness and lamenting before the Lord, and he says that he's pouring out his soul. And so I believe this psalmist here is remembering these things as he's in his mourning and weeping. These remembrances discourage him. He remembers, he realizes he doesn't have any of it right now. And I just think of maybe a modern parallel that we've seen depicted in films and maybe you've read in books of, of a, a Jew in the midst of the Holocaust and, and how quickly life changed for them. They were enjoying life and family, and then within a matter of months or years, everything turned, and they're in such horrible circumstances. And as their mind drifts back to what life was just maybe a few months ago or a few years ago, and how the circumstances are so different, it saddens them 
to think of the contrast being so great. It seems to be similar to the psalmist here. And so this all leads the psalmist to ask in verse 5, Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He's depressed. He's despairing. He's wondering why he's even feeling this way. And so I ask you this morning, can you relate to this man? Maybe not today. Maybe in times past. The sense of wondering, why do I feel so down? Maybe you feel tangled in a web of emotions that you can't even explain. Maybe sadness and sorrow seem to dominate your days and you feel stuck. Or maybe you can relate to his spiritual drought, this sense of being distant from the Lord, that it's been a, a while since you've felt that great joy and celebration in the worship of the Lord. And you're wondering, how do I get back there? I want to, to experience what I experienced before, but it's been a long time. Well, let's come alongside the psalmist as he counsels himself, because I believe we're going to learn some things. Here, verse 5, and we're going to spend some time in verse 5, and this is repeated throughout the psalm, and so we'll, we'll spend some time explaining what he says here in verse 5 so that we can understand even what he's saying as we encounter it later on in the psalm as well. But in verse 5 here, I want you to first notice his honest assessment, his honest assessment here in verse 5. He says, why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't try to put on a mask. He states it as it really is. This is how he's really feeling. And I believe this is instructive for us as well. We need to take an accurate assessment of who we really are and how we're really doing. Where are we at? We can't just continue plowing forward with life, thinking that we're okay, thinking that things are going to change. We sometimes have to look inward long enough to see how we're actually doing. It's like looking under the hood of your car, right? You can't spend your whole life just looking under the hood of your car, otherwise you're not going anywhere, um, and so is true with introspection. We can't just spend all of our time looking inwardly and, and, and looking, uh, as sometimes it's been called navel-gazing, uh, this, this kind of just looking in on yourself and, oh, what's this and that, and, and examining the internal workings of our soul perpetually all the time. But it, like with our car, it's sometimes helpful to pull the car over, pop the hood, and actually spend some time looking and assessing what's, what's there. And the same is true with our own souls. Have you... Pop the hood of your soul recently? Or have you been just kind of moving on with life and going on with your routine? Are you experiencing closeness and intimacy with the Lord? Or is there distance? Is there a land of plenty or a land of drought? Do you even know? And so we, this, this, uh, Honest assessment is helpful for us to see and that we can learn from ourselves. But secondly, I want you to notice his frank confrontation. He confronts himself. He, he tells himself, in one sense, to, he tries to help himself snap out of it. 
He recognizes that he's sad. He's, his soul is depressed, but he asks his soul a direct question. He confronts himself. And this is one of the unique features of these psalms is that he's speaking to his own soul as if he's having an out-of-body experience. It's kind of a funny thing to witness. Why are you downcast, O oh my soul? I mean, he can only speak to himself, but he's like pulling, he's like he's, he's pulling two persons within one. And this is the first step in keeping his soul from sliding farther, is to ask himself a direct question and to actually think about where he's at. Sometimes stopping ourselves to ask ourselves why we feel a certain way or are acting a certain way is just what we need. And so he says, why are you feeling this way? Why is it that you are in turmoil? But then he, after the question, he essentially grabs himself by the shoulders, looks himself in the eye, and preaches some truth to himself. He says, hope in God. Hope in God. He gives himself a command, he, an imperative. He tells him to do something. Listen, soul, don't just sit there in your downcast state. Don't just sit there in despair, but you need to do something. And that is you need to hope in God, which means that he's somewhat diagnosed the fact that he hasn't been hoping in God, that his hope has been in something else and it's let him down. But if his hope was in God, he wouldn't be let down. To hope in God means to trust in God for the future, to know that he is sovereign and that he is in control and that he is good and that the what he works out in each one of our lives by his sovereign power is going to be the best for us. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. God is in the business of giving good to his children, and so his children can hope in him. Even when things look sad, and hoping is a direct counterpart to despair, right? Despair is saying that there's no hope, and yet Hope is saying, yes, we can fight this. We can look to God. Why should he hope in God? Because praise will have the final say. He says, for I shall again praise him. I shall again be able to rejoice and exult in God. Internally, yes, but I think the ultimate expression for him would be back in Jerusalem at the temple and in that full worship of God as experienced by the Old Testament saints. He knows that he will be able to go back to what he once experienced. He can also hope because of the character of God. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Now, the translations here have gone different ways with this, but they capture the same point. The psalmist knew that God's personal saving action on his behalf was where his hope was founded. As you, some manuscripts here have my God in verse 5, and many have it, most have it in verse 6, and you can see, those of you who have the ESV, that it reformats the verses so that the my God is part, uh, grouped with verse 5, even though it's still a part of verse 6. 
And this is the translator's way of saying that they believe it goes with verse 5 to match the refrains that we see in verse 11 and then in chapter 43, verse 5. But here the psalmist is reminding himself what he once happily knew. He once knew that God was his salvation and that he could praise the Lord. But it's been hard to see that light lately. It's been hard to realize that there is hope. And so he reminds himself of it. So as we look at the psalmist being depressed in the drought, how can you and I find hope in this this morning? Well, I believe there's a few insights that we can glean from this. The first is that sadness is not a sin in and of itself. Sadness is not a sin in and of itself. It's an emotion, and emotions are expressions of our hearts, but sin occurs the level of our hearts, and what we love affects how we respond to life. But necessarily being depressed or sad or discouraged is not itself a sin, but it depends on what our hearts are loving and worshiping in that moment that may determine what exactly is a sin or not. Or what we do with that emotion. If we continue to spurn the truth of God and think upon falsehood, then there could be sin for us. But the emotions themselves are not something that we should feel guilty about. Secondly, questions are not doubts. We see questions all throughout these psalms. And it's important to realize that questions are not the same thing as doubts. Many people will say, oh, I have many doubts. But what they really are saying is that they have a lot of questions. Questions about how this works or, or why God does this or does that. And those questions can be asked in a faith-filled way. I think we see that in this psalm and really throughout the Bible, that there can be questions that are asked that uh, are, are just just exactly that. They're natural questions. Questions are part of the human experience. We have limited knowledge. We have limited understanding. And so to ask those questions to God even in prayer is okay and even appropriate at times. But thirdly, I think we can see from this and, and drawing this from uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones' classic book, Spiritual Depression, where he so helpfully said that we need to that most of our sadness in life comes from the fact that we listen to ourselves too much rather than talk to ourselves. Our hearts, our emotions are telling us something, and we so often just listen to that. We listen to what our emotions say, that, that life is bad, things aren't going to get any better, that I am a sorry soul, or whatever it might be. And so our, as our souls are tell us something, we listen to that too much rather than putting the brakes on it, putting our hand on the mouth of ourselves, and we say, no, no, let me tell you something. And we need to talk to ourselves. We need to, as we say around here, preach the gospel to ourselves, right? We must put truth before our hearts so that it can cut through the haze and we can actually see who God is. Guys, the circumstances of life that often get us into such a depressing state can haze up the truth of God. We can lose sight of who God is. Just this summer, as we were driving back to Southern California from Central Oregon, we were driving um, in Northern California and a uh, beautiful mountainous region up there, and yet 
as we were driving, we realized that uh, there must be a forest fire somewhere because it was ex- incredibly smoky and incredibly hazy. And so uh, we're just driving and kind of wondering where that's at. We, you know, we've come to, uh, uh, wildfires are pretty common in California, and so uh, not shocking, but um, hadn't heard about it, and, but we could definitely see the effects of it. Well, as we're driving, um, I saw a sign for a, a vista point coming up about a quarter mile. And usually the vista points are telling you that there's some, some pretty incredible landscape that you're probably going to want to see if you pull off and, and just take a moment to see it. Well, as I was driving, I was kind of going, yeah, I mean, it's general, like, there's trees and stuff, but there's nothing that's, like, amazing I'm going to want to pull my car over for, which caused me to look around and say, well, maybe there's something that I'm missing. And sure enough, once, once I started actually looking, I could see this ominous mountain directly in front of us that I couldn't really see before because of the smoke and because of the haze. And yet there was Mount Shasta with its, its glacial sides and, and beautiful dominant mountain that on a clear day, normal day, you would see and be wowed by an hour ago when you first saw it. But because of the haze, I couldn't see it until I was right up close. And in fact, I needed, you could say, a map or a sign to point it out for me. And I think it's illustrative of what can happen in our lives, that things can cloud our lives and we cannot see the, the, the great and awesome God for who He is. He becomes small in our minds, oh yeah, distant somewhere out there. But we need the Word of God to point Him out for us again, that our souls would be captured by His beauty, captured by His sovereignty, and cling and trust in His goodness, even when the haze of life is all around us. We must not doubt in the dark what we knew in the light. And that's what the psalmist does here. So the first contour of the psalmist's struggle is that he's depressed in the drought. Secondly, though, we see that he is wrestling in the waves. He's wrestling in the waves. And we see this in verses 6 through 11. And here in verses 6 through 11, the psalmist changes landscapes. Where he was in a drought in verses 1 through 5, he's now in a torrential storm or lost at sea. Sometimes our spirits are low because they're dry and empty, and other times it's because we're absolutely overloaded and beat down. We're drowning. And that's what the psalmist describes here. He says, My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. He, he comes right out. He has just said, why are you downcast, O my soul? And then he's, he commands himself, hope in God. And then he comes right back. It's like he lifts himself up, and then he comes back down and says, my soul is still downcast within me. He's trying, but he's wrestling with this, with this dynamic. And he says, my soul is downcast, therefore, therefore he's going to do something based upon that. He says, I'm going to remember you from Jordan and of Hermon from Mount Mazar. He chooses to set his mind on the Lord while he's in a faraway land. Jordan referring to the land on the east side of the Jordan River. Hermon is the tallest peak in Israel. It's a mountain in the northern, northeast corner of the country of Israel. Mount Mazar, we don't really know what that is. And so some commentators go, oh, it's a, it's a peak it's up around Mount Hermon, but we don't really know what it is. But 
I tend to like the suggestion of other commentators who, uh, who point out the fact that, that, Mount, that Mazar means a little hill. And so what the psalmist is saying here is that even though he's up and around the largest peak in the country, that peak is just a little hill. He's essentially calling Mount Hermon this little mountain in comparison to the mount where he wants to be, which is Mount Zion where the temple is. His mind is so captivated by the worship of God and by Mount Zion where the Lord is and where he wants to go that, yeah, this great mountain is just a little hill compared to where I want to go which is the greatest mountain above all. And I believe that's consistent with his desire to be at the temple that we see through these two psalms. See, up in that region, though, the snows would melt, the rain would fall, and the rain could fall on those slopes, and those, the streams would become swollen with water and would flow rapidly. And so he then is, brings these water analogies to his description in verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. You can envision someone standing in a waterfall and the, the water just pouring down over him and, and, and there's, there's no relief. It's, there's no, uh, it's not a bucket that suddenly pours over you and then it stops. It's a, the waterfall that keeps rushing, keeps flowing. You, you're trying to get air. You're trying to, you want to say something. You want to yell out in the midst of the roar of this waterfall, but all you hear is your own voice, and no one else can hear you. All you hear is the roar of the waterfall that's surrounding you. He's only left with his own deep cries. But then he says, all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. Now he's in the ocean, and, and he's, he's, the waves are crashing over him and he's trying to get back up for a gasp of air and then another wave comes down on top of him and he's beat down and he's twisted and he's rolling and, and as the waves keep churning him around and around. They keep going over him. He feels like he's drowning. And in, in these water references, he's communicating his confusion as he's getting tossed around. What else is there? His loneliness no one else is there. He's experiencing this by himself and his suffering. It's painful. And yet in the midst of this pain, he locks on to the Lord. Look at what he says in verse 8. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love. And at night, his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Here we have a day and night analogy, which is an interesting contrast to the fact that what we saw before in verse 3, that his tears were his food day and night. There he was focused on his sorrow all day long. Here he's transitioning and he's thinking about the character of God all day long. By day, the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me. He remembers the Lord's love for him, even in the midst of such a barrage of suffering. And he notes how the song of the Lord is with him, and he turns that song back into a prayer. Such has been the case for many uh, a sorrowful believer who has sung a hymn or a song uh, deep in their distress and turned it back a prayer to the Lord, and it's comforted their soul and reminded them of the character of God. But... This reminder of God's character causes him to pray in verse 9. He says, I say to God, my rock. But, but then he asks uh, some more brazen questions. He says, why have you forgotten me? 
Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Here he's again being brutally honest. He feels like God has abandoned him, like God has forgotten him. And he asks, he wonders aloud why he's in the defeated state. The word for mourning here refers to being ashy or, or being darkened, this, this reality that those who mourn would put ash upon their heads to show that they're in a state of mourning. And, and so it's a very descriptive word. Why am I blackened? Why am I ashy? Why am I in this state? When the enemy, who's the one doing the evil, seems to be walking around victorious. Honest questions, don't you think? The questions that we all would probably have in such circumstances. But the questioning prayer is followed by a revelation of the pain this man has received from his enemies in verse 10. As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? The enemies are verbally taunting him. They're questioning him while he's still, why he still trusts in God. And they are like Job's wife, if you'll remember, who advised her husband to curse God and die. They're saying, God has rejected you. Where is your God? You say you still trust and believe in him? You say you hope in him? Why are you in such a desperate state? Why are you so miserable? Why in the world would you still be trusting and hoping in him? That's ridiculous. Your God's nowhere to be found. You can see where his tears got the idea, right, of the absence of God. But there are two things I want you to see in the stanza that we've somewhat already mentioned. The first is his remarkable honesty, right? He talks about the fact that his soul is downcast, verse 6, that he's the source of his pain is the atheist enemies that are barraging him, verses 9 and 10. And he's honest about his own questions, about these questions that are welling up in his soul. He doesn't stamp them down go, oh, I shouldn't ask that. He says, no, I need to let this all out. If we ourselves are going to journey back to joy, if we are going to find light in the midst of darkness, then we have to come to grips with our situation. Illusion does not lead to joy. Fantasy does not lead to joy. Reality and honesty is the first step to leading back to joy, to finding the light. Do you feel like you've been this honest with God about your own life and your own struggles? Do you talk to him about the pain you feel, about the hurt you've received? Do you confess your questions to God? This is the kind of honesty that God wants from his children. He wants raw authenticity and not just pious formality, and the psalmist helps us to see that. But secondly, we see in this, this stanza is his gritty faith because he's still clinging to God. He's got his hope and trust in the Lord. But it's not just in the God who makes his life comfortable. He clings to God as rock, verse 9, but he says that it's God's waterfalls and God's waves and breakers that rush over him. In other words, he recognizes the sovereignty of God over his suffering. That God is ultimately in control of the pain and the difficulty that's coming his way. And even though they're breakers, even though they're waves that, are, that make him feel like he's drowning, he knows that there is someone who's controlling those. And it's the Lord. Your waterfalls, your breakers, your waves. 
And he knows that the Lord is commanding his love for him in verse 8. And so this man has a, has a gritty faith that clings to the Lord even when things are difficult. And friends, as we said before, this is what we need to do is remind ourselves of who God is. Remind ourselves of his steadfast love for us even when we don't feel it. Because you see, the gospel is true whether we feel it or not. The gospel is an objective reality that we read about in the scriptures that God loved us and sent his son so that we might have life. That is true on any day, every day, 24-7, no matter how you're feeling about it. And so we simply need to remind ourselves of that truth by going to the word and seeing that before us. And that's essentially what the psalmist does is preaches his gospel to himself by coming back to that refrain again in verse 11. Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. The last contour we see in these psalms of this man's struggle with dark and depressing emotions is his progressing through prayer in 43, 1 through 5. Progressing through prayer. Here we see a little bit of hope. The scene is changing again from drought to drowning to I think this, these verses show a little bit more of a climbing a hill at dawn. The sun is beginning to come up. And he begins by boldly asking God to be both his judge and his defense attorney. He says, vindicate me or judge me, O God, and defend my cause against an ungodly people. He wants God to set the record straight for him. He identifies his enemies here as those who are ungodly, those who are deceitful, those who are unjust. As we've seen, he's been harassed, he's been oppressed, he's been taken advantage of. And this could be multiple people or even represented by one individual as he mentions a deceitful and unjust man in verse 1. But the point is, the psalmist is turning to God for deliverance. He calls God his refuge in verse 2, meaning a fortress or a place of safety. But notice in verse 2, he's still suffering. He's still hurting. He's still asking brutal questions. In other words, perfect clarity hasn't come yet. It's, he's still wrestling, going back and forth. He repeats these similar questions that we saw in 42. 2 verse 9 and then he turns and makes a plea for help in verse 3 he says send out your light and your truth let them lead me let them bring me to your holy hill to your dwelling then I will go to the altar of God and to God my exceeding joy in this request the psalmist admits he needs guidance he says lead me guide me I need help and here we see that he's, he's asking that God's light and his truth would lead him even while he's out in the desert. And maybe that will mean back to actually to Jerusalem, the holy hill, or it could just mean to God there in the dry desert. And here the, the psalmist anticipates a progression of greater proximity and greater privilege. He says, take me to your holy hill, the place that Yahweh chose. Take me to your dwelling place, the house that he inhabits. Take me to the altar, the approach that he has provided for his people. And then finally to God, my
my exceeding joy, the personal fellowship that he extends. He describes this progression of getting closer and closer to the Lord. And friends, it is the light of God's word and the truth of his word that causes us to lead us back to God as well. For us to go and to see God as our exceeding joy is found through the word of God. But what I love about these psalms is, is that we see him go back and forth. He's almost schizophrenic, right? He, he's contradictory. You go, wait, are you hoping in God or are you not? Are you, is God your exceeding joy or are you downcast, O oh my soul? And isn't that the reality of human nature? Some days we feel this, some days we feel that. We can be schizophrenic ourselves, contradictory in our own selves. And so there's a realness here that is helpful. And it's important to realize that the tactics that the psalmist employs are not a quick fix. Notice he ends 43.5. Why are you downcast, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? He's not out of the woods even at the end of 43. He's still in the thick of it, but we've seen him fight. We've seen him struggle. We've seen him keep the Lord before him. And he's in a better place now than he was when the Psalm 42 began. And so we can find light in the midst of our darkness as well by hoping in God, by setting the truth of God before us. And as we close this morning, I just want to remind us that we have one who walked through the valley of the shadow of death on our behalf, whose soul was deeply troubled and deeply sorrowful, Jesus, the Son of God, who understands being troubled, being downcast. You'll remember in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus left his disciples and it says, Taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. This is a man who, like the psalmist, was taunted by his enemies. You remember while he hung on the cross that those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. And so the chief priests and the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He can't even save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross. We will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. But Jesus, who walked through the darkest valley, did not lose his trust in his Father. He did not lose his desire for fellowship with his Father. As he prayed in John 17, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Friends, it's because Jesus walked through the darkest valley on your behalf that you can have light in the midst of your darkness because he dealt with your greatest enemy, which was sin. The sin that stood between you and your creator. What he calls 
upon each one of us is to trust in that sacrifice of Jesus upon the cross and to know that we can have life and forgiveness in him. And so I encourage you this morning, look to Christ. He is the only hope for your soul today. And he will be your light when all other lights go out. Let's pray this morning. Our Father, we thank you for the hope that we see in your word. We thank you that there is hope even when it seems like there's none. We thank you that we have your word that reminds us of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray for those who are here this morning whose hearts are heavy, who are sorrowful and burdened. May they be able to hope in you, knowing that you are with them, that you have done the greatest work for them, which is the salvation of their souls. And may they give them light and hope today. It's in Jesus' magnificent name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed. We'll see you next week.